We will look at Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. If you have your pew Bible, you can look at pew Bible page 940. Zephaniah chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Father, we come before you bowing, submitting to your lordship, submitting to you as our sovereign God. We bow in gratitude, recognizing that the only reason we have any hope is because of the grace you have given, the mercy you have shown, the great gift of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God himself, that you have sacrificed for our sins. We thank you. We praise you. And God, we look to you for our hope, knowing that it is secure and firm because you are a God that is in control and you are a God that is faithful and you are a God that we can trust. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good things, good things to this morning, and what a hope that we do have, and what a hope that uh, Israel was given there in this chapter of Zephaniah. So let me ask you, have you ever been promised something, but it just doesn't happen as quickly as you hope? Now, if you've lived in Kansas City for any time as a sports fan, hope delayed is a, was a common experience until just recently. I, I tell my daughter, I just cannot believe you're growing up and living in Kansas City during this time of World Series and Super Bowl, because let me tell you, those were promised but delayed for many years. But maybe on a more personal note, your boss promised a promotion or a raise, and yet it keeps getting put off. Or maybe you're in a relationship, and uh, you were promised a greater commitment, but it never seems to happen, or your engagement was delayed. And let's face it, with COVID this past year, many such uh, events have been delayed. In fact, you realize tomorrow will be one year exactly from the Sunday I preached the last message before we went into lockdown. That was one year ago. And let me tell you, there has been many things that have been delayed, but I think we as a church, and I hope you individually, can say God's grace has been sufficient in this past year. 
But how does it make you feel, whether it's spring break or a summer vacation, when things get delayed and you're expecting them? How does it make you feel? I want you to think about that. When you expect something and it gets delayed, because I can relate with Gwen and I trying to have a child. We went seven years, and each year went by, and that hope was delayed. And it it does something to your heart. It does something inside you. In fact, hope delayed makes your heart sick. It can just make your heart sick. In fact, Proverbs 13, 12 says it well. Hope delayed makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope delayed, heart sick. Hope fulfilled, a tree of life. Thinking back to the garden and the paradise and God's blessing upon your life. This morning, I want to talk about hope delayed when it comes to the promises of God. Now, we've just spent seven weeks going through the book of Zephaniah, and the hope is on the hope of the coming day of the Lord that we just sang about. And what is the day of the Lord? Remember, it's a day of global judgment and glorious salvation. In fact, the Jewish day, they reckoned a day the opposite of what we do. For them, it was evening and morning. That was a day. We think morning and evening. And so in reality, for a Jewish reckoning of a day, night comes first, then comes the breaking of the dawn. And that's what the day of the Lord it is. It is a nighttime of judgment that precedes a daytime of salvation. And what we are anticipating is a great tribulation of dark judgment globally that will break forth into a millennial kingdom of, of, of salvation, particularly for the people of Israel, but for all the nations in Christ's kingdom. And so Zephaniah ends with this amazing, joyous promise of hope. In fact, the book divides in nighttime of judgment, basically chapters 1 and 2, and then here at the end of chapter 3 is the daytime of salvation. But look at verses 19 and 20 again. Here's how he ends. At that time, I will bring you in, and even at that time when I gather you together, indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth, When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. And very specifically, he's speaking to the nation of Israel there. But, what happened in history? Yes, judgment came to the various nations, as Zephaniah predicted, including Israel, through their exile to Babylon in 586 B.C., And yes, there was a return and there was a rebuilding of the temple 70 years later. But let's face it, historically and reality-wise, nothing was fulfilled like what we just read about in Zephaniah 3. And certainly we know, not only then but still today, God's king, the victorious warrior... The, 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 the Lord himself has not yet come to rule and dwell in the midst of the nation of Israel. And besides, even though Israel returned after exile, they still lived 
under four Gentile kingdoms that were predicted in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. In other words, if you were an Israelite, you'd be looking at your fellow brothers and sisters and saying, where's the promised fulfillment? Where's the hope? It was being delayed. And what happens when hope is delayed? Your heart gets sick. You get discouraged. You get depressed. You get defeated. You begin to think wrong. And you get distracted from your real hope. You temp- you're tempted to fix your hope on other people, other places, other sources than the Lord and His predictions and His promises. And that's exactly what Israel did. When God's hope of the coming day of the Lord was delayed, they grew heartsick. They got discouraged. They got depressed, defeated. They began to fix their hope on people instead of the presence of God. They began to fo- focus their hope on their own power or the power of other kingdoms rather than the power of God's promises. They began to focus and look to places other than the coming kingdom of God. And guess what? We're no different here this morning. It's now been more than 2,000 years since Jesus first came, and he did launch the day of the Lord. First came the night of the crucifixion, then came the morning of the resurrection. But we are still waiting for the final, complete fulfillment of the day of the Lord in the Great Tribulation and the Millennial Kingdom that will literally happen, or at least uh, will culminate in a literal 24-hour day when Christ will come come here on this planet and render judgment, a dark judgment, and a light-dawning kingdom. And so we're still waiting. And so what I want to do in this message is to address that hope delayed. And I want us to learn lessons from the people of Israel, what they did wrong, so that we can learn from history and not repeat the mistakes of history. And so this message will look at what happens when hope is delayed, how we are tempted, tempted, what we're tempted to do when hope is delayed, and then where is true hope found. So let's look, first of all, What happens when hope is delayed? Hope delayed can discourage God's people. And as we think about this past year, there are many things and many hopes that were delayed. And I think people have gotten discouraged. They've gotten depressed. They felt defeated. And we've got to fight against that. But how do we do this? And why why did it happen? Well, for Israel, they were waiting in deafening silence for 400 years. You see, Zephaniah was the last prophet before the exile, but when they returned from the exile, there were three other prophets, and the last of these was the Italian prophet of Malachi. Okay, that's a little Bible... Thank you, Dana, thank you. A little Bible humor out there for you. Bible humor is bad, but it's kind of funny. It's like dad humor, okay? No, no, it's the Hebrew prophet Malachi was the last prophet who ends with a prophecy concerning the coming Messiah, his message, and his messenger who will prepare the way 
for the coming king. Turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi, these are the very last words spoken by God to the nation of Israel. This ends the Old Testament. And here's, look at Malachi 4 and let's read verses 1 through 5. For behold, the day is coming. There it is, the day of the Lord, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and on and that and the day that is coming will set them ablaze. There's the nighttime, there's the judgment of the day. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise. I mean, there's literally the rising sun of salvation of that day will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. I mean, it's going to be springtime. Isn't, you know, springtime's coming. And there's just an excitement and an enthusiasm. There will be joy. And you will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. Even the statues and his ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb or Sinai for all of Israel. In other words, until that day comes, focus on my instruction, my revelation. Verse 5, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse, period. Silence. Deafening silence for 400 years. For 400 years, no word from God, no prophet, from, uh, no prophet from God, just hope delayed. And we know that what that means. That means hope delayed makes the heart sick. But it gets worse. The people of God were not only waiting in silence, they were also living in humiliating submission to four Gentile kingdoms. Far from the king of the Lord in their midst, they were ruled over by Gentile kingdoms. And we see those in Daniel 2 and 7. Babylon, Medo-Persia defeated Babylon and made the, ex, uh, the return from exile. And then Alexander the Great in Greece defeated the Persians. And then the Roman Empire defeated Greece. And there we are in the New Testament. You see, all of this was taking place according to God's divine will as predicted by his prophet Daniel in chapters 2 and 7. But where is the coming king? When would the day of the Lord finally come? Israel was in God's place But without God's presence, the glory was no longer dwelling in the temple. And most of God's people were not even in Jerusalem. They were scattered among the Gentile nations. But the greatest discouragement of all was that God's chosen person, the Messiah, the King, had not yet come. Just hope delayed. And we know what that means. Hope delayed makes the heart sick. So how did this happen? Now, first of all, you know what? We're in a very similar but different situation. And why do I say different? 
because we know the king has come, right? He did come, finally, after 400 years. And the day of the Lord is now here, and yet not yet completely fulfilled. And yet, after 2,000 years, we too can get discouraged, defeated, depressed, because our hope of the second coming is still being delayed. And we will get even more tempted to be discouraged if, or better, when persecution heats up, and it will. Yes, we know Jesus is the King reigning at the right hand of the Father. And yes, we have the indwelling Spirit. And these are precious blessings of the new covenant that He has brought. But the longer the hope of His kingdom on earth is delayed, the greater the possibility of our hearts growing sick due to hope delayed. So what happens when hearts grow sick Due to hope delayed. That's the second point I want you to see, and it's this. Hope delayed can distract God's people. Hope delayed can distract, discourage, defeat, and divert God's people from their true hope. Listen, during this time, this 400 years of silence, Gentile persecution, and God's prophetic silence for 400 years... Israel began to be distracted from the true hope, the promise of the person of the coming Son of God, Christ Himself. They began to fix their hope on the wrong people and in the wrong places. And as a result, four different groups sprung up, slowly developed among the Israelites. And we see three of these four groups in the New Testament. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Zealots. There's a fourth group called the Essenes. We don't see them in the New Testament, and we'll, I'll tell you why that is in a moment. But what I want you to know is the Jewish historian Josephus identifies these groups, talks about these groups, and it's interesting because we as Christians, if you don't know this history, you read Malachi... Last book in the Old Testament, and then you read Matthew, the, new, the first book in the New Testament, and all of a sudden there's these groups of people that are really hostile to Jesus. All of a sudden there's Pharisees and Sadducees and, and, and uh, Zealots, and, and we don't even know about the Essenes. What's going on? How did this happen? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because their hope became distracted from God's hope to human alternatives. So let's take a look at these four groups. God's people begin to fix their hope on the wrong objects, human alternatives. And as we go through these groups, I want you to kind of think, how, do I see myself in this? And do I, do I, as I reflect on this past year or two, do I see Christians kind of identifying with these four groups? So let's look at the first of them, probably the most familiar to us, if you've spent any time in the Bible, and it's this. The Pharisees fixed their hope on law-keeping. The Pharisees got distracted and fixed their hope on law-keeping. They became distracted by legalism. They, the Pharisees were meticulous in keeping the law. This gave them their name. Pharisees probably means, most likely, separated ones. They were separated due to their meticulous law-keeping. 
that the average uh, Joe in Israel, or Jonah, would not do. As a result, they were passionate for others to join them in fixing their hope on keeping the law. And think about this. Didn't Malachi, the last word from God, didn't Malachi say, remember the law of Moses, don't forget it, keep it, and obey it? And so they were very much among the common people. And they were trying to recruit the common people to come, come, live like us, keep the law. And so they had great respect. They were the kind of people, we think of them as bad guys, but really they were good guys that were well respected for their devotion to the law. It was like, okay, I can't live that way, but I sure admire your commitment. In fact, they were so committed to these things, there was even a category among the Jewish people themselves of the bruised Pharisees. And the bruised Pharisee was one who would constantly run into walls and become bruised and bleeding because they were always looking up to the sky, never wanting their their gaze to cast upon a woman perchance they might lust. Now, again, that's twisted in a lot of ways, but that's just how they were. That's what their hope was in. They added man-made rules to the Bible in order to not disobey God's word, just like we have learned Eve did in the garden. You see, they knew the Bible, but they missed the Christ of the Bible. Here's what Jesus said to them in John 5. You do not have God's word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom God sent. That would have freaked them out. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You know what he's saying? You study the scriptures, but you can't see the Savior who is standing right here in front of you. You see, they knew the Word of God, but they missed the God of the Word. But there's another group whose hope was distracted, and these are the Sadducees. Sadducees fixed their hope on cultural compromise. And so that was why they were sad, you see. Dana, come on, another Bible humor right there. Okay, that was a bad one. Sorry, it's used often. Hey, it's raining. We got to have humor. Here's the deal. Scholars debate about what their name means and who they are. It seems like it refers to just rulers, rulers who ruled with righteousness and justice. And the reason being, the Sadducees were essentially wealthy in the ruling class, and the great majority of them were priestly aristocracy, who took a very secular, pragmatic approach rather than a religious, ideological one like the Pharisees. They were kind of the very opposite of the Pharisees. In fact, these two groups didn't get along at all until it came to going against the true Messiah. Then they joined forces. They fixed their hope on the surrounding social and political culture. They were power brokers who did what they had to do to stay in power. We're Jewish 
We're ruled by Rome. We've got to make alliances. We've got to do whatever compromises we need to do to stay with the limited power that we have. And since we're the ones enjoying it, let's do it. If the Pharisees were among the common people, the Sadducees were above them. And for that reason, the common people resented the Sadducees and respected the Pharisees. You see, these, this group was distracted by rationalism. They relied on reason as a basis of establishing religious truth. Consequently, they only believed in the first five books of Moses, rejected the rest of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. They were rationalists. They said, let's be reasonable. You got to go along to get along in this world when you're ruled by the Romans. They downplayed the distinctives of Judaism and the law in order to get along with their Gentile rulers. And yet, here's what Jesus said to them about their rationalistic beliefs. In Matthew 22, Jesus said, He answered and said to them, You are mistaken not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. They tried to trick him with a question about the resurrection, which they rejected. And he said, look, you guys don't get it. You misunderstand the scriptures and you misunderstand the power of God. In other words, your hope has been distracted. And you're placing your hope in your own reasoning and in the social and power structures that you're making alliances and compromises with, instead of putting your hope in the promises of Scripture and in the person and the character of God. Your hope is fixed on the wrong things. Now, in contrast to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we see the Zealots. The Zealots fixed their hope on radical revolution, on radical revolution. They were distracted by radicalism. Radicalism is the political view and practice and policies of extreme change. In other words, let's overthrow the powers that be. And they weren't so much a specific group as they as it was a spirit of the age, a spirit of rebellion that cried out, no Lord, but God. No Caesar, but God. They were made up of robbers who took what, let's take back what is ours, these Romans have taken. They were rebels, let's overthrow the Gentile powers. And they were radical assassins who would carry daggers and suddenly kill the ruling powers. Think of the two thieves on the cross. We call them two thieves, but they were really zealots. They were radicals. They were rebels on the cross. You see, the zealots misunderstood how the king would bring not revolution, but regeneration. Jesus went to the cross, and the the rebels on the cross could not understand this. Pilate could not understand. If you are a king, why are you going to be crucified? Why aren't you defending yourself? Why aren't you cussing at the powers that be? Because Jesus wasn't going to bring his kingdom in by revolution, but by the regeneration of hearts from the inside out. 
Jesus said to Pilate in John 18, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Now, the last group is the Essenes. And they fixed their hope on extreme purification. Extreme purification. They were distracted by separatism. Their name most likely means Essenes, holy or pious ones. If you know anything about the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran uh, community that lived just 20 miles outside of, of Jerusalem were Essene in their practices. Their point was Jerusalem is so corrupt, the temple is so corrupt, that we have to live out in the wilderness. And remember Malachi... There's a messenger coming from the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. We're going to go out in the desert, and we're going to live pure lives, and we're going to prepare the way for the Lord. And they were anticipating the coming Messiah. And they built, uh, if you go to Qumran today, they built all these full baths where you would literally walk down and be fully immersed and then walk back out. And they would do this before every meal. And they were constantly getting baptized. And when they used clay pots, they would constantly break the pot after they used it because now the pot was unclean. And we are a pious, holy people. And so you can go there today, and there's just huge piles of broken clay pots because of their desire to live a pure life. But the sad reality, and they thought they were the true remnant of Israel. They were the ones, the remnant spoken of in Zephaniah 3. But the sad reality is this. They were out there living as monks, taking baths, breaking pots, and 20 miles away, Messiah was announcing the kingdom is near because the king is here. Now let's just stop a moment. I want you to stop, and I hope that you can see yourself in these groups. Maybe you can identify. Maybe your heart has been distracted. Let the Spirit search your heart and ask yourself, which of these groups am I tempted to drift towards? Which of, maybe I I, I wouldn't say it out loud, but my heart really has this spirit, a spirit of legalism and hope in good works. My hope is believing right and living right, but it's not in Jesus' righteousness as a free gift. My hope is in studying the scriptures more than seeking the Savior, knowing Him, praying to Him, rejoicing in His presence. Maybe my hope is in majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. The Pharisees missed out on the bigger principles of mercy and joy and love and kindness. Or maybe you drift more to the rationalism and the compromise of the Sadducees, where you just say, look, I've got to keep my head down in this hostile culture to Christianity. I've got to keep my head down. I've got to keep my mouth shut. I've got to keep my job. I'm going to go along to get along. A little compromise never hurt anyone. Maybe you're known more for being a good person at work rather than a godly person. Or maybe you're tempted by the radicalism and the rebellion of the zealots. 
known more for what you're against than what you're for. The way you talk or post on social media comes across like, my hope is in politics more than Jesus and his coming kingdom. You're filled with more anger than love, with more argument than hope, and with more bad news than good news. Or maybe you're tempted by the separatism and the isolation of the Essenes. Let me tell you, it, 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 it kind of is tempting, isn't it? Let's circle wagons. Let's circle wagons. Let the world go to hell in a handbasket. We're living for Jesus. We're waiting for Jesus. Come on, Jesus. Come on. And this last year of lockdown and all of this craziness has just led to even greater temptations in this area. But how can I really know if my heart's distracted? How, how can I push against this? And beloved, we must fight against it. It happened in Israel. And if you look at Christian groups and Christian people, This past year, you can identify all four of these groups. So how do we discern? Well, that's the third point. Hope delayed calls for discernment by God's people. Because here's the reality. Listen to me. None of these groups thought they were wrong. Okay? I mean, if you would have said to a Pharisee, are you distracted in your hope? Are you fixated on the wrong things? Like, no way, man. We, we've got this. None of these groups would have admitted they're wrong. And yet each one was. And when they encountered Jesus, when they encountered God's true hope, the distraction became evident in their hostility to the person and the work of Christ. They were confronted with their sick hearts by a loving Savior. So hope delayed calls for discernment by God's people. So here's what I want you to think on this last point. Where does my hope lie? What is my hope fixed on today and tomorrow? Who is my hope? And drop the religious answer, Jesus. Go beyond, let the Spirit and the Scriptures search your heart to say, where really does my hope lie? And would anyone observing my life see where my hope lies? How do we know? Well, here's seven principles to discern where your hope is fixed. So let's go through these. And these are just reflecting back and looking forward. So let's look at the first one. Each group had a measure of truth taken to an extreme. So just don't think, none of these were totally wrong. And really, if you can comprise what's best of each of them, you get the person of Christ, okay? So each had a measure of truth. The Pharisees remind us that we must never fall away from the truth of Scripture, But we need more than head knowledge and external conformity. We need head, heart, and hand. We need to let the word penetrate our attitudes, our thoughts, our values. Hope doesn't come from knowing the Bible. It comes from knowing the one who reveals himself in the Bible and who will fill your heart with hope this morning. 
The Sadducees remind us that we need to build bridges to our culture. And we need to honor those in authority over us, even when they are, are, are abusing and, 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 and are, are anti-Christ in their ruling over us. And yet, we are reminded that we shouldn't be people-pleasing idolaters who follow politicians who are far from being like Christ. The zealots had a measure of truth. We, we need to be willing to resist authority when they require us to disobey God. But we need to be reminded where to draw the line, when to draw the line, and why we are doing it and how we should do it. Even the Essenes give us a convicting rebuke concerning living a separated life. We need to strive for holiness now more than ever. I promise you this past year of lockdown and isolation has only increased the consumption of pornography and immorality, and it is rampant. But we need to live pure lives, not in a way that separates us from the very people that we are meant to reach. Jesus ate with sinners to call them to repentance. The point is this. When we fix our hope on any of these, instead of or before Christ, we are doomed. And here's the second principle. this. Motives were often self-centered pride rather than God-centered humility. Because here's what happens. When we get distracted from our hope in Christ, and what God is doing through him, we get fixated on a hope that focuses on what we can do. And when we focus on what we can do, keeping the rules, being you know, overthrown, living pure in our own power, we become prideful. We become hard-hearted. We lack the gentleness and the lowliness of Christ. Third, mindset was on externals more than internals. You know your hope has been distracted when your mindset is more on what's going on outside of you than what's going on in your heart. The Pharisees majored on the minors. The Sadducees were rebuked for not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. The Zealots forgot that you can overthrow a government, but you still have hearts that are unchanged. And the Essenes were breaking pots to remain pure, but missed the one that can clean the inside of the cup. There's a fourth principle here, and it's this. Many missed the living hope in Christ when he came. And this is the most tragic of all. When your hope is distracted, you miss what God is doing in your midst. It's really sad when you think about it. The Pharisees and Sadducees joined forces to crucify Christ. The two rebels on the cross kept cussing Jesus because he wouldn't resist and cuss the authorities that were crucifying him. The the rebels that weren't being crucified were so busy planning the next insurrection, they missed the meaning of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And the Essenes were literally out in the wilderness breaking their clay pots and taking their ritual baths while Jesus, 20 miles away, was saying, the kingdom is near because the king is here. 
They all missed it because their hope was in the wrong things. Number five, maintain the proper perspective by knowing the storyline of the Bible. On Wednesdays, we're teaching the storyline of the Bible. And if you keep your eye on the storyline of the Bible, your hope will anticipate God's presence coming and ruling with God's people on this earth, in God's place, through God's chosen person, by God's power, and according to God's precepts, all for His purpose of glorifying Him and the good of all people. And then number six, and this is really key, make much of Jesus to avoid these extremes. You say, Chris, how can I keep from drifting? How can I keep from being distracted? Make much of Jesus to avoid these extremes. Make much of Jesus that the scriptures reveal. Speak more of Christ than your cultural icons. Be a real revolutionary and be a servant leader with sacrificial love. And live a pure life amongst the lost so you can make Jesus more visible to them. And finally, the seventh principle is this. We must repent of false hopes to embrace the true hope in Jesus who is our living hope. You've got to repent. And here's the good news. This is such a great way to end this message. Here's the good news. Pharisees like Nicodemus and Saul of Tarsus did repent and place their hope in the living God. And Sadducees, many of whom were priests, repented and became obedient to the faith. Here's what Luke says in Acts 6, 7. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. The Sadducees were no longer sad, you see. One of Jesus' disciples was a zealot, Simon the Zealot. Okay, And one of the rebels on the cross accepted Christ and shifted his hope from revolution to the coming exaltation of the risen Lord. And what of the Essenes? Well, who knows? They're still out in the desert breaking pots and taking baths. But here's what we do know. Jesus himself went into the wilderness and he defeated Satan and resisted the temptation, and had any Essene repented and come to him, he would have cleansed him from the inside out. Now I ask you again, which one of these groups are you most prone to be like? And which one are you tempted to be like in the midst of your discouragement? Because ultimately, Christ in you is your hope of glory. And so here's what I want to challenge you to do for the next 30 days. I want you to take the hope challenge. Because the only way you can really know where your hope lies and secure and fix your hope on the hope of Jesus, in the, of, of the hope of God in the person of Christ, is to saturate your mind and heart with Scripture. And so pick up this handout if you haven't already. And for the next 30 days, here's nearly, not all of them, but nearly every hope passage in the epistles of the New Testament. Read through these every day for 30 days. 
Because wherever you are in your hope, no matter how deep a pit you're in, the living hope of Jesus Christ can lift you and enable you to persevere until the final day comes. Amen? You see, we're tempted to fulfill our hope in the power of the flesh, not the Spirit of Christ. But the reality is this. Only Jesus is the perfect law keeper. Only Jesus is the just ruler who will overthrow injustice. Only Jesus is the true radical who overthrows hearts. And only Jesus is perfectly holy. Let me challenge you. Receive him as your hope today. And if you need help with that, fill out the connection card. Talk to me afterwards. Talk to the people around you. It's the greatest gift that God can offer you today. And that's himself in the person of the risen and living Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed at your your compassion to condescend to becoming one of us and to live the life we couldn't, to die the death that we owed to pay that debt, and then to rise again and be our living hope. Lord, you are all the things these people were looking for. You are perfectly what they strive to be. And Lord, you can be that for anybody here this morning. And so I pray that you would do what only you can do. Speak to hearts, transform hearts, and may we turn away from false hopes and fix them on you, the dying, risen, living hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.